Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. We're revisiting a conversation Melissa had back in June about people of color living with disabilities and the disparities they face. Let's get to it. The U.S. government estimates that as many as 23 million people in the U.S. are struggling with long COVID. The sometimes debilitating symptoms include brain fog, fatigue, difficulty breathing, and depression or anxiety. But over a year after the Biden administration released guidance stating that people with long COVID can be included under the Americans with Disabilities Act, receiving benefits remains a struggle. Even before the pandemic, roughly one in four Americans were living with a disability. And while people with disabilities are more likely overall to experience financial difficulties, that's particularly true for people of color with disabilities. According to the Century Foundation, as of 2020, one in four black disabled people was living in poverty. That's compared to one in seven white disabled people. At the end of May, the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion held a hearing on financial inequities for people with disabilities, including those with long COVID. Disability rights advocate and Century Foundation fellow, Vilissa Thompson, testified at the hearing. This young black disabled adult trying to navigate systems that have roadblocks to impede my success. This data is not abstract to me. It is personal, as it is for millions of disabled people. The systemic and societal realities disabled people, particularly those of color, endure must not be ignored when we discuss the economic barriers that impact our ability to not just survive, but thrive. I wanted to hear more from her on these issues, so she joined me back in June for a chat. Hi, I'm Alyssa Thompson, and I am the founder of Ramp Your Voice. I'm a disability rights activist, and I am a fellow at the Century Foundation and co-director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. And in full disclosure, I am a longtime trustee of the Century Foundation. Now, Valissa told me about her experience testifying before Congress. Oh my God, it was such an incredible experience of uh, having the support of my team at the Century Foundation and developing both my written and oral testimonies to where I talked about the financial realities, economic realities of disabled people in this country. And I wanted to add an intersectional understanding of that. So I created a character named Keisha, who is a young um, black disabled adult who's navigating young adulthood, you know, and all the issues that come with it in general, but also the disability aspects of it when it comes to the systems and the realities that we deal with, when it comes to education, employment, housing, social security, you know, those things that many of us who are disabled adults have had to navigate for the first time, including myself, and wish that somebody had told us a little bit of what to expect and, you know, what the realities are, which just means a lot of obstacles for us to gain the things that we have a right to, And what does that mean when it comes to our ability to be a part of society as young people? Now, when you talk about persons living with a disability, that's a pretty diverse group of people. Yes, yes. We're looking at over 61 million. And 
Diverse in a couple of, or maybe not just a couple, but diverse in multiple ways. Let's just walk through that a little bit. Let's just start with what maybe to some folks seems obvious, but clearly isn't. What does it even mean to be living with a disability? What kinds of disabilities? Perhaps having the the greatest impact on the question of, for example, economic opportunity. Well, a disability can be uh, someone who is blind or low vision, deaf or hard of hearing. I know that myself, I am... Uh, physically disabled, and also hard of hearing myself. So disability can be of the body, mind, and both. And, you know, how I always look at it as, you know, as a disabled person, you have to be aware of how the world engages with you and the reaction to that. And those reactions can impede the opportunities that you have to succeed when it comes to the dreams you have when it comes to employment, education, just being social and thriving in our society, what resources are available to you when it comes to like housing and so forth like that. So even though we are the largest minority group in this country, there are many barriers that exist when it comes to us that a lot of people are not familiar with until they encounter a disabled person or they themselves have a disabled person in their lives to whom they are witnessing them encounter these barriers. And it's something that should be on the consciousness of everybody, particularly when we're dealing with, you know, the economic aspects of how do people support themselves? We see, you know, the conversations around, you know, high gas prices, high rent, you know, high inflation on food. And those are all tied to disability in the ways that we're able to access those resources, to pay for those resources. And how do we ensure that we have what we need every day? So let's now talk about these other um, sort of pluralistic differences and specifically around intersectionality. Mm-hmm. When we look at the broad community of persons living with a disability, if we crosscut that with intersectionality, with issues of race, language, mm-hmm. um, ethnicity, status, gender, trans identity, queer identities, when we look at the community of those living with disability, are these the same hierarchies and inequalities that we see in the general population? The one thing I want to state is that disabled people make up every group that you just mentioned, you know, race, you know, gender, you know, um, religion, you know, queerness, transness. And we need to recognize that, you know, that's so important. You know, we think about the intersectionality, you know, disability is stark in that. When we think about it, when it comes to race, for example, Native Indigenous people have the highest prevalence of disability in this country, followed by Black Americans. So with that particular identity alone, you cannot effectively talk about race issues without having a disability lens when many members in those communities are impacted. And so when we look at the other issues of identity and then societal issues, education, you know, access, you know, accessibility and so forth, it is important to have a disability lens because disabled people are typically forgotten when we talk about those issues. And when we bring that Um, lens within these conversations, we see that whatever disparities that exist, they exist even sharper when disability is at play. And then when you add the other intersecting identities on top of that. So as I say in the Black progressive spaces that I'm in, you cannot fight for whatever freedoms, liberations without including disability and especially including Black civil people in what you're doing and understanding the plight of this community and how racism, ableism, 
the other isms and phobias that exist impacts a person's ability to be a part of society and what does that look like? Let's just take one example, the issue of incarceration and um, institutional confinement, right? If we make mm-hmm. it sort of a, a broader um, way of thinking about all of the different ways that our system of incarceration um, confines and institutionalizes so many, help us use or put on a disability lens for thinking about racial inequity in our carceral system. Well, have then look at you know, when it comes to state-sanctioned violence, you know, 50% of people killed by the police are disabled, you know, and a good portion of the percentage are those who are black and brown. Black and brown disabled people engage with the police at higher rates due to the way in which race and disability intersect. And when it comes to disabled women, can make up a great percentage of those who are incarcerated, and we will look at it by race gender and disability. So disability, as I said before, is a very big part of the conversation that is missing when we talk about incarceration, when we talk about state-sanctioned violence, when we have issues of police brutality. Many of the people whose names we had sadly gotten to know, Sandra Bland, Kareem Gaines, Freddie Gray, they were all disabled, but their disability identities are a footnote if at all, within the storytelling of what occurred, what happened to them and who they are. You know, you cannot leave out disability in these type of conversations because you are leaving out how people are greatly impacted based on what they look like, how they present, how these systems devalue them because of those identities. According to the Center for American Progress, as many as half of people killed at the hands of law enforcement officers have some kind of disability. And according to a 2017 report from the American Journal of Public Health, black people with a disability are twice as likely to be arrested by the time they turn 28 compared with a white person without a disability. The reasons for these jarring statistics are complicated but at least one root cause is America's frayed social safety net. It fails to provide the medical, emotional, and economic supports many with disabilities need. As a result, in a moment of crisis, there's no one to call but 911, and police are often unable or unwilling to manage these situations. Take, for example, in 2017, Oklahoma police fatally shot a deaf man who could not hear them shouting to stop. And in 2021, Oakland police tased and restrained a man who was having an epileptic seizure, claiming that he was assaulting them. So now America's prisons burst with those who in previous decades might have had access to specialized services for their needs, creating a bit of a perfect storm where race, disability, and the carceral system meet. Alyssa Thompson discussed how the Disability Economic Justice Team at the Century Foundation was working to address some of these issues. For those of us who are on Social Security, for example, you know, we are, you know, forced to save very little money, you know, due to the assets limits that have not been updated for decades. You know, currently um, disabled folks on SSI as an individual can save up to $2,000 and a couple of $3,000. And we know that that's not enough in case an emergency happens. You know, that's not enough in case you want to help, you know, someone in need or just be able to build a more fruitful future for yourself. 
So we want to not just address the barriers that exist for disabled people to thrive in this country, but also figure out how do we get policymakers, you know, organizations that have a stark interest in the economic success and involvement of people in this country to be on board with what's going on with this particular minority group and how they can play a role in that. So, you know, our goal is to really impact policy, you know, over the next 10 years to really not just address the issues, but also make the changes that will hopefully ameliorate and then long-term eliminate the barriers to economic success and to economic thriving for disabled people. We're taking a quick break here, but we'll be right back with more of Melissa's interview with Vilissa Thompson in a moment. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Jerry Seinfeld on making a life in comedy. This is a writer's game. If you can write, you succeed. If you can't, you will not make it. Any comedian can be funny on stage, but the bullets are the writing. Jerry Seinfeld on his film Unfrosted and more. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway, and we're back revisiting Melissa's conversation with Vilissa Thompson, fellow at the Century Foundation and co-director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. When it comes to federal housing, there's only a certain percentage that has to be designated towards housing for disabled people, those with physical disabilities, those who may be blind or low vision, deaf or hard of hearing. How we need to expand that so disabled people are not having to be on long wait lists to gain access to adequate housing that they have a right to. So just understanding how the housing issue that we hear people talking about due to, you know, of course, obvious rent increases, you know, when it comes to the buying market, folks just feeling like they're being outbidded, you know, because of the prices being so astronomical. That's a disability issue as well. You know, when it comes to who is able to participate in this market with what resources, whether they're relying on governmental aid, like Section 8 and other governmental assistance programs, or if they have their own income, what does that mean for them and be able to find accessible housing that meets their needs in a housing market that at times feels like they forget that disabled people exist and disabled people are renters and home buyers. And we need to have a more universal accessible designs available so that we can be comfortable in our homes, so that our homes allow us to grow and thrive, you know, where we should feel the safest within. What kind of reception have you gotten from members of Congress with whom you've spoken? Um, are folks seeming to be on board with some of these efforts? Are there folks you would point to as real champions of these efforts? And are there those who maybe are less champions? I think that the main thing I have witnessed is educating people on our issues. I think the same thing as the layperson, some members of Congress may not be as versed as to what are the disparities for disabled people when it comes to economic issues. So I think that's the whole point I wanted to participate in the hearing is to provide a better understanding of what the realities are. But there are champions you know, in Congress that do get the issues. I know that during the hearing, I had a great question and answer exchange with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley who has been a champion for this community since she has been in office. And her questions towards me centered 
some of the issues that I mentioned, so security, housing, and so forth. So it's folks like Congresswoman Presley who get it, who are trying to do their best to educate their colleagues about the issues and also letting the community know, the disabled community, that, hey, you know, I understand these issues. I want to hear from you. I want you to understand that I'm willing to do what I can do within my power to ensure that we are fighting for your rights and fighting alongside you and not dismissing what's happening here. So I think that, you know, it's a way a two-way street of highlighting those in these positions who do get it, who are part of the community, who are doing everything that they can, and also bringing those who may not be as first into the fold so they can become better allies, co-conspirators within their own positions to enact their policies that will greatly impact the quality of life and opportunities for this community. I wonder about folks who maybe aren't going to have an opportunity to um, testify before Congress or maybe even necessarily talk directly with their member of Congress. What are some of the local-based initiatives that um, that folks who are engaged in and interested in this work, particularly at the intersections of economic well-being, questions of, of race and identity and disability status, what is some of the, the local work that folks might get involved in? I say it's definitely looking to who's doing the work in your area, you know, when it comes to the grassroots organizations, you know, the individual activists who have an understanding of these issues. Disabled folks are everywhere. So that means that, for example, I live in South Carolina. So that disabled activists like myself who are doing great work here, who are working with organizations, whether they're disability center or not, that really want to bring these issues forward. So I think that it's really on us to really find the people who are already there. You know, one of the great things about living in these times is the use of technology. And many disabled folks like myself have utilized social media and websites and other platforms to really create spaces for ourselves and not having to wait for someone to make room. We are making the room, we are making the tables that we feel like that should exist and should have existed before now. So I think that in looking on the ground of sorts, looking at who's there on the ground, but also who's there virtually, who may be in your state or in your city that you can collaborate with. So I think it's a duality, you know, of how to connect with folks to understand who's talking about these issues. And it doesn't have to be just, you know, disability specific, you know, every social issue has a disability lens. If you care about climate change, there are disabled folks who work within that spirit that you can engage with. We care about reproductive rights, abortion rights. There are disabled folks who are stock activists in that space. So whatever is your passion, you know, as a person, whatever that you care about, there is a disability connection and there are disabled people who are bringing that connection forward that should be on your radar. And just a last question, as the pandemic was descending upon the nation, I remember having an initial chat with you um, about, again, some of the intersections of disability status and the pandemic. And now that so many organizations, institutions, workplaces, elected leaders are, you know, by and large declaring the pandemic over, uh, I'm just sort of wondering about, again, what you're thinking about feeling at the intersections of pandemic realities and disability. Well, first, the pandemic is not over. It is raging forward. 
And it really on us to make that a reality of understanding. I know we're all tired, myself included, but just because we're tired does not mean that COVID is tired of us. And so it is very important for us to still take precautions that we were taking two years ago. You know, wearing your mask, allowing people to work from home, doing events from home, and also finding ways to still keep those connections. You know, disabled folks like myself, we see folks are tired, but we also understand that we are tired too. Many of us are tired of still taking the precautions while everybody is able to have quote unquote big fun outside. And we're still inside trying to make sure that we don't get sick or get our loved ones sick. And, you know, I don't know what it's going to take, Melissa, for people to really understand that for us to get to an after or a post-COVID, that this is a community effort. We are not going to get over this through individual acts. It's going to have to be a collective. Thank you to Vilissa Thompson, disability rights advocate, a fellow at the Century Foundation, co-director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative, and founder of Ramp Your Voice. 